Welcome to Navigating Disruption. I'm Shaquille Barmel, and I'm the CEO of Ocean Blue Strategic and partner with the Summit Group. I'm a coach, a consultant, and a speaker, and I help individuals, teams, and leaders navigate disruption with competence, confidence, and character. In the Navigating Disruption podcast, I share insights and interviews with interesting leaders that are making impact in the face of uncertainty. So this year marks the 20th year since I graduated from business school. And this normally would be a homecoming year and we'd be gathering together with our uh, fellow classmates uh, in London, Ontario, just to reconnect and re-engage with the school. We're all looking forward to it. But of course, that is not going to happen this year. And uh, there are some virtual events happening that allow us to re-engage with the school, but it just won't be the same. So I've decided that this year I am going to record a few episodes with former classmates that I haven't seen in the last 20 years as a way of commemorating this uh, special year. The last 20 years have been filled with disruption, and our class has been in the middle of it and leading some of it. And now there is a pandemic and the unprecedented and uncertain shift in our lives going forward. So in these episodes, I will have brief interviews with my classmates, members of the MBA 2000 class at Ivy, to answer the question of looking back on the last 20 years, what lessons do you draw that will help us in the next 20 years? I hope you enjoy these interviews. In late October 1998, I was walking to school, business school that is, in London, Ontario. It was the first snowfall while I had just moved from the mild climate of the West Coast. I had been warned about how cold Ontario was in the winter and was therefore prepared. My classmate, Niraj Manga from India, was not as prepared. He was walking to school with a warm sweatshirt and was absolutely freezing and shivering with his hands tucked underneath his arms to keep warm. By the time I saw him, we were minutes from the school. As we walked in, he disappeared, and the next time I saw him was 10 minutes later seated in the classroom. And 10 minutes after that, we were in the discussion of the case. You would have never known that Niraj almost froze to death. He was on fire. You see, Niraj was brilliant, and he always had a way of getting to the central issue of a case by approaching it from a completely different direction than the rest of us. And he did it with such passion, conviction, and certainty. And when his assessment was challenged by another student, he had his arguments lined up. He was in waiting. He was one of those classmates that enriched the learning experience for all of us. Niraj is now the CEO of Antia Investments. I haven't seen or spoken to him in 19 years. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, Niraj. How are you? I'm great, Shaquille. It's good to see you after such a long time. Good to that see you. That too on a Zoom too. conference call. Good to see you too. I have to say, uh, Niraj, I, I recall the last time I saw you was uh, in Toronto, downtown Toronto, on the corner of Front and a Young Street uh, near the Hockey Hall of Fame there. And we were both at the time working in consulting 
both worried about our futures because of course the dot-com bubble had just burst and uh, we were unsure of where our careers were going next. I think the firm you were working for has had been downsizing uh, and the firm I was working for was sending people on furloughs and creative programs uh, and that's the point at which we met at that moment of uncertainty. Do you recall that? And since then, if we are meeting today on a Zoom call, it doesn't speak very highly of either our networking skills or relationship management skills, I would say that. So we, some of the yeah. lessons we learned in organizational behavior in our class weren't really learned very well, I assume. Yeah, well, if we, we should have done a better job of staying connected, for <laughs> sure. Um, I, have, I have definitely followed some of your writings um, over the years uh, with great, great interest and pride, but um, you are absolutely right. We should have done a better job. And it's interesting though, that's what this time, this time that we've had this last six months really, really reminded me how important uh, people that I've interacted with in the past, how influential they've been to me. And you're just one of those people Niraj that I really wanted to take some time to, to reconnect with. So thanks for, Thanks for being open after all these years to reconnect. Thank you, Shaquille. Thank you for holding me in such high esteem. I hope I deserve it. Perhaps well, you your do. listeners can be a better judge of that. <laughs> well, we'll see. Um, I, you know, I've, by email, I've, I've briefly described what I'm doing and, and really having conversations with business leaders around how what they've learned over their careers um, over the last 20 years have shaped them and also kind of what are the implications going into the next 20 years and any kind of words of advice you can offer um, to others, I think would be highly appreciated right now. So I'd love to start our conversation with, you know, uh, a bit of an understanding of, you know, in in 1998, you came to, uh, to Ivy to get an MBA. You came from a long ways away, which was a big commitment and investment of time. You came from India. So can you tell me a little bit of what you were doing in uh, India at the time that you decided to come to Ivy? What prompted you to come? What were you doing? Tell me about some of the years just before coming to business school. Well, that's a good question and an interesting one at that. Uh, I grew up in an academic family. My father is an organi- a professor of organizational behavior and human resource management. Mm. So I'd always lived on campuses in universities with business schools. Mm-hmm. And uh, since that was the kind of environment at my home, it was always tacitly understood that I was going to pursue an MBA degree and then become an executive or entrepreneur or a bureaucrat, as most kids from middle-class Indian families aspire to at some point in their life. Mm. So, but I was also a lot into reading and reading magazines and consumer affairs and current affairs. And in one of those magazines, I read about a company called McKinsey and Company, yeah. a business. So that was a consulting company and they opened an office in India, I believe in 1991. That was the first I ever heard of them. And yeah. that was the first I ever read of them. And uh, the principal, the global principal at the time was an Indian gentleman who later on got implicated in some nefarious activities in the US. But it was his interview and he said, the smartest people in the world go and work for McKinsey and Company. Huh. And I said, well, that's me. <laughs> I thought too highly of myself. Yeah. 
And, uh, and then they said that the, they hired these kids from the top universities of the world, like the Harvards and Stanfords and wherever else they are in other countries of the world. And that's how you enter into McKinsey and Company. Hmm. And then I said to myself again, that's going to be me. <laughs> and, and that's how my journey, thinking that I wanted to be a consultant, number one, and two, that I was going to go to a global business school so I could work for a company like Bain, BCG or McKinsey. That's how it, be it began in 1991, nice. which was my first or second year of university at the time. Yeah. And ultimately in 1998, I ended up uh, and decided to come to Richard Ives School of Business yeah. uh, because it was a case-based school yeah. similar to Harvard. Yeah. But more importantly, it was a school where given my limited financial resources, I had figured out I could pay my way through the first year. Yeah. And because at the time, Canadian immigration process was different, mm -hmm. I also calculated all the points, figured out that within the first nine months of landing in Canada as a student, I would be able to get my Canadian residency. That would make me eligible to get a student loan in the second year of university from one of the Canadian financial institutions. Mm -hmm. And then I will be able to fund my education. So that's what I did. And it worked out for me, thankfully. Yeah, very good. Uh, and what do you most remember uh, from your experience at, uh, at Ivy? I love the class experience, the case-based experience at Ivy. Yeah. And I especially love the whole team-based approach of that 48-hour report where you yeah. had to put your heads together, yeah. five people with five different viewpoints, and you had a deadline and you had to come to a conclusion. Yeah. And whatever that conclusion was, good or bad, that's what the entire team got. So it didn't matter if you were God or not, yeah. you were part of a team and you had to make it work. Yeah, that was really something. I mean, and literally it was 48 hours, right? We, we would get the report on, I think, a Friday. At 12 o'clock. We had to hand it in by Sunday uh, afternoon. That's right. And we didn't sleep very much in that time. That's right. So fast. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that as well. It was a real test. It was quite exciting. And in fact, uh, probably good preparation for our, our lives in consulting afterwards. So, <laughs> so talk, talk to me a little bit about the experience afterwards, because of course, I remember you were successful in getting a job at one of those top consulting firms. It wasn't McKinsey, but it was Bain and Bain and company where you got a role. How, was it what you expected? It's a very good question, Shaquille. Uh, so before coming to IV, I had an interview with McKinsey and company in India for consulting role. Okay. And they offered me a job, but not in consulting. Hmm. And I declined that. Hmm. So I came to IV. And it happened the same way almost in IV too. But the Bain role, actually it was not at all what I thought it was going to be. Hmm. So prior to coming to Canada, I was working in writing equity research, but not directly in investing. Mm. I loved doing that, but I believed I wanted to be a consultant because that's what I was at the back of my mind. However, when I went into my role, I think I immediately found two or three weaknesses in the entire process of working as a consultant. One, it was a very relationship oriented role and as a new Canadian in a new country out of a new business school, suddenly being put in front of 
experienced executives who had been in the roles for 10 years, 15 years or 20 years, it was challenging for me. Mm. The second thing I found that was challenging for me was, yes, you are a smart individual from a great business school, but it is too early for you to start advising business people who've already been in roles for 10 or 15 years, except be able to help them with some kind of data analysis, which is kind of a junior role that doesn't need the kind of skills I had. Mm -hmm. And I found that very difficult to manage. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, it seemed that as a consultant, you were never really, as a junior consultant, which would be an associate level consultant, you were never really developing a skill set that you could depend on because every two to three months, you were on a new project that required new kind of skill sets. Mm-hmm. And so, no, it did not go the way I thought and I did not enjoy my role at all. On top of that, there was too much travel, tight deadlines, red-eye flights, not enough food, too much to drink. So. Mm-hmm. So, Niraj, you know, as I, as I listen to you uh, there, I remember very clearly the experience of you at, in class at, uh, at uh, business school, uh, which is why I find you such an impactful person in my, my, my experience. Um, I know you're going to feel very uncomfortable by me saying this, but you were regarded by many of us as being a genius. Um, a business genius, a mathematical genius. Uh, uh, you always came forward with, you know, the right commentary um, on an issue that, and sometimes was was out of left field, but really elevated the discussion and the thinking in our classrooms, particularly on some of our strategy, uh, our strategy cases. Um, I'm not sure if that's the experience you recall, but that's the experience that many of us that became your friends at business school. Um, experience with you. Well, Shakin, you speak too highly of me, but thank you again for that positive <laughs> feedback. But I think to the extent you are referring to an ability to immediately or quickly hone in to the important aspect of an issue, which may or may not be evident to everyone, yeah. that has served me really well over the last 20 years in my investing career and in my equity research career, in my forensic accounting and corporate governance consulting type of career very, very well. Whereas I may not have succeeded in my first attempt at a professional career in consulting at Bain. Yeah. And I have nothing against Bain for that, just yeah. so I'm clear. That was a great organization. Yeah. They've spent a lot of time training their people and provided a great environment to work in it. Mm-hmm. It's just that I was not suited for that. But right. subsequently, all the skills I had when I went into work at a startup company called Veritas Investment Research, where I was yeah. the first employee, and I created that with Michael Palmer, who was the founder of the organization. Within a few years, I was in my element. And the three things that are required to succeed in a career, in my view, are you have to have an ability, you have to have a functional skill set that crosses verticals. Mm-hmm. So, in, for, so I would say that in my work, the functional skill set that crosses verticals and boundaries and geographies is an ability to read financial statements as long as they are in English. Right. Like real business acumen. Right. So as soon as you have a financial statement in English, within 20 minutes of looking at those financial statements, I can figure out 80% of the answer for a business. Hmm. The second skill set I developed over time was the ability to read through 
vast amounts of unrelated information, create a hypothesis, and then create a comprehensive report of 10, 15, 20 pages that takes thousands of pages of information and is able to give an answer, mm -hmm. opinion-based answer. That answer may not be correct, but it is an answer based on some serious work. So I, so the writing skills, ability to communicate your ideas succinctly and to the point in a logical format, that's the other skill set which is very important in order to have a successful career over time. Yeah. And the third thing I learned, which was the most important thing, which the business school did not pay as much emphasis on, was that the only thing that matters is not how smart you are, and now hard work, how much hard work you do, how well you get along with other people. Because mm -hmm. everybody believes they are the smartest person in the room, and rightly so, because everybody's worked hard, they're professional, they've spent years doing what they're doing, and they have varied experiences. So that is, I think, the most critical skill which is undervalued in business school is the organizational behavior classes where they teach you how to get along with people. Yeah, I sure agree with that. <laughs> Can't argue with that at all. I've had to work very hard to develop the business acumen. Those are things I had to study and work very hard to do. I was generally natural at the relationship and the people side, but I completely agree with you that you, you really do need both. You can't have one or the other for a successful career in, in business. You do need, you do need both. Niraj, can I just reframe uh, or just maybe confirm a bit of the journey that, that you were on at that time? Because I really think it's important for our listeners to, to kind of, to draw that out as well. You, um, were clearly very smart. I mentioned that you had this aspiration, this thought about what you would do. It led you to pursue a career in management consulting. But very quickly, um, when in management consulting, you realize it wasn't right for you, but you recognize the skill sets required weren't the skill sets you had, or perhaps even the skill sets that you took joy in, in developing. It sounds like it was a very humbling time for you. Is that, is, am I reading that right? Yes, it was. It was a very humbling time. It was also a time for lots of introspection. Yeah. As to what does success mean in life and do you live your life for others or for yourself? Mm -hmm. So it felt great to be paid the big bucks and tell everybody where you work and to travel in an airplane and go and meet people. But then at the end of the day, in the evening, I would sit back and think, what exactly did I accomplish today and what did I do? And I wasn't getting a lot of concrete answers that I could hold on to. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a very valuable um, lesson to learn at that stage in your career. And I'm sure it sounds like from what you describe as the next leg of your journey um, was a very important time to get that earlier in your career so that you could then kind of fulfill your purpose. And, and you know, one of the things I've learned that is counterintuitive uh, earlier in life is that you grow and you get better, not by overcoming your weaknesses, but by building on your strengths. And it sounds like that's what you recognized as you went to Veritas is 
I'm strong in a couple of areas, a few areas. Let me invest my energies in getting even better at those. Would that be right? I think that is right. But also sometimes you need some kind of, um, let's call it luck to back you up. Okay. Since I was already good at writing, since I already loved the stock markets and equity markets. And while I was at Bain, the whole Nortel thing was blowing up. And there were many uh, colleagues and friends at Bain who either used to own Nortel stock or who were in technology consulting. And every time we had a discussion, I would have a lot of things to say about tech business in general and overall stock market and equity market. And I still remember one of my colleagues, Tony McCloshick, he was from INSEAD and he said to me that you would be so much better as a money manager and as an equity analyst than uh, perhaps a consultant. Mm. And so I just, I knew I was good at that, but I decided that other people can also recognize that perhaps I'm struggling at their organization and not because I lack uh, knowledge or awareness or an ability to work hard. It's just that it was just not my cup of tea. Yeah. Yeah. It's so valuable, isn't it, to have people in your life that will tell you the truth about what's in your blind spots, doing it kindly, but telling you the truth. It is very important. And I have always been like that. I have also always told people the truth. And I think sometimes it hasn't gone that well for me because I'm not able to sugarcoat it like you, Shaquille. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that is the reason I am what I am. And I'm still learning to become a better sugarcoating person, if I may call myself well, that. We're welcome to the Not UN, to right? say that you don't have other skills, but you do have a very good way of dealing with people, which I don't. Well, we are all a work in progress, which is what makes life so interesting um, and relationships so interesting because we all bring different things to uh, different things to bear. Um, and, you know, it's something that, you know, we're seeing play out in the world right now is, uh, you know, there's two camps, those that appreciate the differences in diversity that different people bring and the other camp, which is I want people to think and feel and act the same way which is leading to a lot of challenges in parts of the world, but uh, hopefully we'll get through this time. That's right. And one of the things that I learned very early on in my research and investing career was that because there was no legacy or incumbency in what I was doing in our organization, we were not hostage to, not hostage to the accepted opinion in the marketplace. Hmm. So I still remember the first company I covered, it used to be one of Canada's most respected companies in the healthcare space called MDS Inc. Mm -hmm. And the first time I opened their annual report, that was the first stock I covered, I read it, and I was shocked that that company was going to try and build its own nuclear reactor to make nuclear isotopes. So they were in the nuclear medicine business, mm -hmm. it was called MDS Nordion, and they used to source some of these isotopes from uh, AECL reactors at the Chalk River Laboratories in Ottawa, and those reactors were coming to the end of their life. And so MDS decided, oh, we're going to build these maple reactors with new technology. And as soon as I read that, I said, wow, no nuclear reactor has ever come on stream on budget on time anywhere in the world. So how can this small company with a bare $2 billion market cap have its own nuclear reactor? Yeah. And then Canada has something called Canada Nuclear Safety Commission. Yeah. And they hold public hearings yeah. on safety of nuclear reactors. So I said, let me see what they are saying about this company. Yeah. 
So when I started reading those documents, there was like five to 6,000 pages that I read of public hearings, all transcribed, available for anyone to read, mm -hmm. which basically said the reactor design was flawed. And the, the reactor is supposed to have a safety shutoff rod that falls into the core of the reactor in order to shut it down. In the event, the reactor the fission reaction goes out of control. That's exactly what happened in Chernobyl. Mm -hmm. And I go, wow, this company is building a reactor and their shutoff rod design doesn't work. Canada is never going to let this come on stream, which means if, this business, if they don't stop spending money on this, this business is going to go bankrupt. Wow. <laughs> and that's what happened. I, I wrote that. I said that over two years, the whole base, entire base street was shocked at what I was saying. They used to call me the reactor guy. I remember going to a meeting and I said, oh, you are the guy who writes on the reactor, right? And yeah. that's exactly what happened. The reactor was never came on stream. The company sold off its various divisions to pay off its debt and ultimately it doesn't exist anymore. Wow. Very, very controversial perspectives. But so what, what motivates you to tackle these, these issues, um, to put yourself out there, to see into the future and we have... Uh, and just decide that I got to put myself out there and say these things. What motivates you, Niraj? Well, what motivates me is to get the right answer. Mm -hmm. That's what really motivates me. Mm -hmm. And I can go to any lens to get the right answer, mm -hmm. as long as it is fact-based. Mm -hmm. And the kind of business I have been and the kind of career I had, uh, there have been enough instances in the public equity markets where managements have tried to cheat investors. And I, be having a background in economics, I believe that when managements do that, it's a misallocation of capital savings to investing surplus in the markets. Mm -hmm. It makes for a more inequitable society. So mm -hmm. I like to get to the root of the answer. So it sounds like that one of the things that you were focused on, and I don't know, you wouldn't call it this, but I'm calling it this, is part of your job was to call out um, flaws in leadership character. That's what corporate governance is all about. So my expertise in forensic accounting and corporate governance helped me illustrate why governance was lacking because organizations were hiding things or not disclosing them appropriately. Mm -hmm. And or perhaps people misunderstood. The most recent example, if you look at in the last week or two weeks, is Nikola Motors. Mm -hmm. Seeing that that company which has come out with hydro, supposedly hydrogen technology is just a big hot balloon in a hot market. Mm -hmm. And everything they say is unachievable. Yeah. And brought to a skeptical light like mine, I knew that day one, some people have now written research on that, and now other people are catching on to it. Yeah. The fact of the matter is, it's all about governance. It's people's character. That goes back to organizational behavior. Yeah, it does keep coming back there, doesn't it? But the connection between um, character, people skills, um, caring about other people and what you're doing, and then the business acumen to, to, to do that. And, and incentives drive a lot of that. management incentives. Yeah. So if you look through a company's annual report, and it says top management is going to be compensated for EBITDA growth of yeah. X, Y, or Z percent. Yeah. 
all that means is what is the top management going to do they're going to try and buy companies with ebitda yeah it doesn't say return on invested capital anywhere so they won't pay they won't care how much they pay for it they just want the ebitda yeah so one of canada's most respected and well known companies bce inc yeah. bought a company called teleglobe in 2002 yeah, i remember that and they paid an enormous price for it it was in my view a worthless business mm. but the enormous price was paid for that company's ebitda and lo and behold the ceo of that company was compensated for ebitda growth mm. so they bought a lot of ebitda zero free cash flow a business with zero pricing power and declining business but they paid for the ebitda and mr monty retired with 40 million dollars that's just gosh and that's just one example of from 20 years ago which comes to my mind readily but there's a thousand of them every day niraj the stories you could tell uh based on your combination of understanding incentives and um uh reporting and governance and leader character i think this is a time for it have you thought about uh about writing a book i have thought about writing a book and but i haven't put pen to paper in that way yet yeah because the stories keep falling like uh, from what should i say they just keep falling over yeah. like a bunch of books from a cupboard just in the last year we know what happened at boeing yeah. we know what happened with the oxycontin and opioid crisis yeah. we know what happened with the vaping crisis all these companies jewel and oxycontin maker and and boeing crisis they're all crisis of management's integrity right lack of accountability misplaced financial incentives yeah so philip morris bought jewel for i believe 12 billion dollars the day they bought it i said well this company is going to write it off and lo and behold within two months there was a massive health crisis in the us new york times wall street journal every news channel covered it for a long time and then the us president issued an order banning all of those things for everyone for a vast majority of young people i mean Yeah. who are all smokers and it's interesting i used to educate my son who is only 9 years old now and he was 7 years at the time or 8 years and we would go play basketball at ramston park here and i was telling him look these teenagers are smoking this vaping thing and they think it's cool but it is not cool i would show him the presentation the lungs of people the problems they are facing how the oil just accumulates uh, as a fluid in your lungs and then you can't breathe and then he understood all of those things but he so i said to him one day maybe i should talk to these teenagers and he said to me no papa you should not talk to them because <laughs> they will be rude to you i know you care but please don't go tell them yeah i wanted to give them a presentation from cdc in the us i believe that had a presentation on vaping so there is a crisis of governance at multiple levels in the society yeah. some of it is within corporations but some of it is in media and some of it is in our small businesses all these small business owners that are selling these vaping things on the street corner at 711 yeah that's not cool either absolutely niraj you know we could talk for hours on this subject the one of the things i'll tell you is that do not worry about trying to develop the sugar coating skills you can leave that to, to, to people like me the world needs people like you right now uh people like you to to call out these things uh you have the intelligence to see these things the courage to call them out 
um, I would just encourage you to continue to play that role and be that voice uh, because that is what the world needs right now. We don't have any more capacity time to tolerate these kinds of lack, this kind of lack of integrity and this abuse of incentives and abuse of power. So please do keep on that track and know that, that uh, it's, it's highly valued. Um, Niraj, I want to switch gears a little bit because I want to talk about what you're doing now. So you're no longer with Veritas. You had a successful career there. It looks like you developed some incredible um, ideas and skills. Um, what are you doing now? So now I have my own wealth management business that I have been building for the last five years. Uh, it's been a more challenging task than uh, any other task that I've accomplished so far in my life. Okay. And, but from, so there are two aspects of the business. One is gaining clients and two is being able to deliver on returns for the clients that you have. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of being able to uh, both provide uh, protection to client capital in terms of market downturns and in terms of providing upside as the market grows, uh, Antia Investment Inc. My company's performance would be top 1% in North America for the last five years. Wow. Uh, but in terms of being able to gain clients, I think we are in, so on the institutional side, they would need approximately five years of performance. So this is the year I'm trying to develop that side of the business now. And, and then the retail side, there's too much competition, but we are on it. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, and, and uh, kudos to you to continue to push yourself to continue to grow and learn and take on these challenging new, uh, new ventures. Yes, thank you, Shaquille. But it's been more challenging than I thought. This is yeah. the most challenging time of my life. Without, without struggle, um, without struggle, actually, life has no meaning. And it's the struggle that actually is our point of our growth and uh, our point of appreciation and value for, for other aspects of our lives. So um, I know that you will succeed in this venture as you had others, and you will succeed in learning new things. Uh, Niraj, I could again talk to you for hours, but I want to be really respectful of your time. Uh, is there anything from your experiences uh, that you can draw on? If you were to give one piece of advice to leaders that are listening to this, um, this, this episode, anything you'd offer in facing the future in the next few years? Well, stay true to your purpose. And as a leader, your job is always to give polite, but unvarnished advice. Mm. Steve Jobs did that his entire life. Apple is a $2 trillion company. Mm -hmm. so I think that's one thing we can learn from him. Is, it, is, that, is that fair to say that Apple is one of those companies that you admire and you would call out as a balance between kind of doing the right things and integrity? I wouldn't go that far because okay. I do not know. Okay. But I have seen enough and I've heard enough of Steve Jobs and experienced enough in my own life, in my professional life, that people find it difficult to accept unvarnished advice but over time, as that advice appears and builds a track record of being correct, they appreciate it, and then they come back to you for more of it. Mm -hmm. And the case in point is my video call with you today. Ah, very good. Very good. Candid advice is a form of service. It's a great thought. I would agree. Um, you're to leave with this. Thank you for closing us off there. 
Um, really, really enjoyed this conversation and I'm really grateful that we are in touch again. Um, I'm very Thank happy you. to have you uh, back in my life. We're not talking to each other every day discussing a case or a business problem, but it's great to be really connected. I want to wish you all the best for the rest of your day. Thank you, Shaquille. Thanks for taking the time. Now, wasn't that some conversation? I told you. Even now, 20 years later, I still found myself in moments struggling to keep up with Niraj. But here's some things that I took away. First of all, I was really inspired by his awakening, his, his finding his humility. That was really something to hear that story. You know, and then he talked about these three key skills that were universally required in business, the financial acumen, the ability to communicate, and the really important ability to manage relationships with people. He also talked about how important it was to see wrongdoing in business and do something about it. Speak up. He's driven to expose flaws in character, competence, and leadership. And he wants you to speak out. He also talked about how important it was to give unvarnished advice, to give it and be prepared to take it as well. People may not like it, but with time, they will come to value it and perhaps even seek it. I'm really grateful to Niraj for sharing his thoughts with us, and I do hope to stay in touch with him. Thank you for tuning in. If you liked this episode, please do rate or leave a review. It'll help others like you find this show. See you next time.